Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website at carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. And I'm delighted that my guest today is Andrea Chapkinski. You're very welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Um, really looking forward to today's topic, which is on the financial oversight for board members. Um, before we dive into that area, I'd just like to get some sense of your, your own background to date, sort of you know, how you've ended up into the, doing the things that you're doing currently. Okay. Well, I'm a chartered accountant by qualification, and I'm also a member of the charity not-for-profit special interest group at Chartered Accountants Ireland. I'm originally from the north of England, or the Republic of Yorkshire, as we call it, um, if we are from Yorkshire. And um, I moved over to Ireland around about 30 years ago. My husband's Irishman, and he's also an accountant. Um, prior to moving over to Ireland, I would have worked in different firms of accountants, including KPMG and BDO Stowe Haywood. And I arrived, as I say, around about 30 years ago. I think it would be 30 years ago in July. And I initially volunteered for a number of charities when I first arrived in Ireland, just doing whatever needed to be done accounting-wise, bookkeeping-wise, that kind of thing. And then I got paid employment at a charity as their chief finance officer. I moved from there to one of the large firms of solicitors in Dublin, where I was the director of finance for, I think it was 11 years all told. And then I moved over to another larger charity because um, they were anticipating the increase in regulation and compliance needs. And I was there for around about 10 years. And then I moved off on my own. So I'm now a sole practitioner working, providing consultancy, accounting, training and mentoring services, primarily in the charity not-for-profit sector. Very, very experienced, a long track record in, in the sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was smiling there when you're talking about, about uh, Yorkshire. It's probably it's about the equivalent of Cork, you know, how they see the world <laughs> similar. Um, and you're also a member of the Carmichael training panel. You might, might tell us about the types of um, assignments you, you take on, on that, wearing that particular hat. Well, I, I joined the panel, I think it was 2016 or thereabouts, can't quite remember. But I've been with, with the panel for quite a number of years. And I have delivered a number of different assignments, both in the scheduled training and also the um, customised training, and um, and also in terms of consultancy more recently as well, because a number of um, a number of projects have come through the door of Carmichael, and because of my background, because of my training, if it's relevant to me. I'd be asked if I'd be interested in getting involved with that. So it's the, the, the three types of assignments, I suppose, that I'm involved with. And some of the training assignments that I've, um, that I've done with you would include, for example, Governance, Charities um, Act, Companies Act, Charities Governance Co., which I'd dip into within that particular ambit. The role of bo- the board as opposed to the role of the CEO or manager describing what a company limited by guarantee is and how it differs to other different legal structures. Um, Some of the other items would be things like financial management, cash management, understanding, preparing budgets, bookkeeping. A lot of what I do is very practical in nature and I always encourage everybody to get involved 
and to ask rather than wait for me to ask them to ask because I think that people get quite uh, they're, they're quite relaxed and they join in more and I think they go away with more from a from a session like that consultancy type items that I've done in the last say 12 months reviews of financial policies and procedures governance training where there are organizations who've identified that they want to avail of funding and therefore as part of that funding application they they came via Carmichael to myself in terms of governance training how to put together their charities governance code what sort of policies and procedures they needed in place and the like and um, more recently also talking about things like the conflict of interest policy the need to actually have robust policies in place and more recently I've been asked if I'll get involved with another consultancy project where an organisation it's an established charity but they're aware of the fact that um, they've a fairly new board and they actually need to review the work that they've done so far on the charity's governance code and also a board governance handbook as well as I think there are three different training sessions which are included in the package too. So it's quite varied, and from my point of view, that makes it interesting. It is a a good example of of the types of work that people ask us to help with, and and, and the fact is, you know, we we tend to be very practically focused, you know, in terms of we're there to help, and there are organisations that do need help and assistance, and sometimes that can be difficult to get from within, and um, so no, it, it is good. One, one of the particular workshops that you do for one of the popular ones that we have is the financial oversight for board members, which is a very important role of board members. You might tell us about what sort of things are covered in that type of workshop and what types of organisations you see turning up to sort of learn more about that particular role of board members. Well, I've actually been a volunteer board member myself as well for a number of charities while I've been here in Ireland. And therefore, I can speak both from the point of view of the practical sense of being a board member where I'd be the only financial person on the board and also in terms of the theoretical aspect of things as well. And the content of the financial oversight workshop um, or seminar that that we run, I start off with the framework and the compliance issues And then I talk about things like the Charities Governance Code within that because I talk about the requirements of the Companies Act and also of the Charities Act and the legal framework behind it in terms of what board members must comply with to satisfy those pieces of legislation. And, of course, the Charities Governance Code is actually part of the Charities Act and therefore I touch on that and in terms of the the main parts of the Charities Governance Code insofar as the impact on finance and uh, financial responsibilities. More recently, I've started including a session with regard to finance and audit subcommittees because I've noticed that in charities, there's been a move over to having more subcommittees, including the finance and audit subcommittees. So I'd go through a terms of reference for a finance audit subcommittee and actually talk about that and encourage a discussion around that. I'd then go on to some of the more practical things in terms of finance and cash management. I'd look at um, the importance of having strong internal financial controls in place. And I'd always refer everybody to the regulator's guidance document, which was published back in 2017, which was one of their first guidance documents, but it's still very much fit for purpose. I'd explain that, in my view, it's important to have... 
fully documented, robust financial policies and procedures. And I go through an example as to the content of a financial policy and procedure and um, what would need to be included in terms of things like delegated authorities and the like. I've touched more recently as well, more than I used to do, on fraud and heading off fraud because I know that in the last 12 to 18 months there's been a surge in attempted fraud, in particular against the charity, not-for-profit sector. So I touch on that and I've had plenty of examples that I've come across over the last 30 to 40 years as an accountant. And I then move on to the reporting side of things in terms of talking about the difference between the annual financial statements or the annual accounts or the audited accounts, depending on who uses which terminology, and compares that to management accounts, which I think are really interesting. That's a really interesting part of being a financial person is actually developing um, management accounts which help the organisation to make decisions and keep on top of their finances. I touch on the charity SORP just so that people know what it means. Um, and then I go through things like jargon, because I think accountant speak is, is something that's a bit too, too, um, too prevalent in the, in, the, um, in the industry, and a lot of people don't understand it. And I go through some examples of management accounts and raise things to ask about, things to look out for, that kind of thing, really. So I try to be as practical as I can be, and depending on who I'm actually presenting the workshop to or, or facilitating the workshop with, I can adapt it slightly. So, for example, I did some work with one of the umbrella groups. It was one of the PPN networks. Earlier in, last year, it would have been, in fact. And having spoken to the person who was organising it from their end, they asked me if I could look at it more in terms of taking care of your group's money as opposed to financial oversight for board members. So I adjusted the content slightly, just to make it more relevant as well. Um, Who do I present it to? Who do I get involved with? When it's the customised training, I suppose it's whoever is here, you know, from Carmichael's point of view, so that could be charities, could be not-for-profits. More recently, I've seen people who maybe would have... um, They'd be advising charities in their own right as well. And then also to community groups, to PPN networks, to volunteer networks. And uh, in the last number of months, I've also been presenting and adapting the content for some of the funders who've asked if I could present to their members who they're actually providing funding to. So it's trying to satisfy as many as, many as, as possible. As I say, it's, it's a, wide, a wide range of organisations and, and needs. And I think if anybody looks at the inspector reports that the charity regulator publishes, you know, when they've had a concern about a particular charity and, and concern had been sufficient severity that they appoint an inspector, quite, quite common to find that it's the trustees have failed in this role of financial oversight. So it's, it's a critical part of the role. From your experience, what sort of the common sort of challenges or issues you've come across where, where, where board may have been failing or paid inadequate in attention to proper financial oversight of their charity? Well, I have to say that most of the charities I come across, they take it very, very seriously. And I think that that's 
commendable. But having said that, I suppose the people who come along to training in financial oversight are the ones who take it seriously. Um, A number of issues that are raised with me are, they include things like the resources that are needed in order to become fully compliant and to continue to be compliant. Um, Also, a lot of people don't have the understanding as to how to interrogate a set of financial statements. And I take from that, and I've come across in practice, that many of the management accounts that are presented to boards are bogged down in way too much detail. I would see that as well as as a particular problem because, um, you know, I have get that comment back to me quite a lot of times and said, you know, for non-financial members of the board, of the board to say, they get the management accounts and it just comes across as a, as a series of figures. Mm-hmm. What sort of things should boards be doing and, and the staff reporting into those boards to do to help enable that it's not just left to the finance committee or, 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 or to, to take care of the finances, that this is a collective responsibility. Every trustee has that responsibility and you can see some board members and well I'm not an accountant and there's an accountant and I'll, I'll, I'll let them take control what sort of things can they, a board do to sort of address that sort of tendency to sort of opt out of your, 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 your responsibilities if, um, on the board and leave it to one or two others on the board to do, take care of it well I think that one of the things that a board can do as a whole is to recognise the fact that it is a joint responsibility also to be aware of the fact that there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing as a question that a board member should not be asking because all board members, they're entitled to ask about the finances. And they're also, if they're taking their role seriously, they should understand the finances. It doesn't mean they need to know all about the minutiae. However, they need to have a good overview of it. I mean, speaking of somebody who was a chief finance officer in charities... I remember one of the organisations I worked in that I was a cheque signatory um, and people would just be blithely signing cheques, putting a second signature on and the number of times I said, stop, you've not checked what I've given you and also saying to them, don't trust me. You you can trust me, but don't trust me blindly. So it's actually understanding enough to to realise that the reason why you have sound internal controls in place are because there's a need for you to understand and to actually read what you're looking at and not to blindly trust anybody. Um, I think that demanding simple management accounts and this this keep it simple piece. Yes, I think think you're right. Just even the the cover page, the sort of say, here is the summary, here are the critical things that you need to look at. And here, particularly variances, that's one of the things I said, you need, you need to look at, if we expected to spend X or receive this amount of income and we haven't, try and understand why and what are the reasons and what actions do we need to take, if any, to sort of correct, correct it. And I, I, I do would like to, the point about this questioning is very, and not, not blind trust, and it is something both that the chief executive and the finance manager report need to understand that, this is a role of the board. It's not that they don't trust them, but they have to, to exercise their role properly. They need to be asking questions. And sometimes, you know, when I know that there'll be some member of the board will ask me about X or Y, 
I'm going to be prepared for X or Y and make sure that it is X and Y is correct or that I understand it myself. So that sort of keeps me onto my toes in a good way and keeps the, the organisation on its toes. Whereas if I could get very lazy as a CEO reporter and I said, well, they'll accept what comes in front of them, they'll sign it off without any challenge or even if they might know the answer. It is that process of explain to us, we need you to, to explain why or give me another reason why it's such a, such a way. So it's a very, very important mindset that board members need to embrace and also from the other side, the reporting in to accept that, that this is a critical part of the dynamic of board is that board members are there to ask those questions. As you said, there's no such thing as a silly question or a stupid question, an awkward question. They, they're all part of that role. So no, no, it's, a, it's a critical part of that understanding that it's a collective responsibility, not one or two people, and it's not up to the CEO to make sure things are right. Because when you read, as I said, some of those inspectors' reports, and you see how blind trust has led a charity into an awful problem, and where reputations are ruined and, and, and careers are ruined, so, critical part. Um, just moving on to sort of, we've had this very unusual period, you know, when none of us had in our lifetimes had something like where we had a COVID, where the world turned upside down. The way we did things, how we did things changed fundamentally. Some will continue to be changed, others will, will, will ad, adapt back to some of the, the other ways. From a charity's perspective, as we are moving Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully moving out of um, a, 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 a lockdown type of environment. What sort of things should charities and particularly boards be on the lookout in terms of that may need to sort of revisit or strengthen as a result of this sort of two years plus where we've done things very, very differently than we used to? Well, one of the things that I've come across in practice is that certain charities are finding it very difficult in terms of managing staff and retaining staff because if it's a charity which previously was based exclusively in Dublin and now all of the members of staff lived and worked in Dublin that during the last two years a lot of people have moved back they've moved back home Um, maybe they've bought a house from the county they were originally from or from the city they were originally from And I think that people have become used to the fact that working from home has a lot of advantages. And I think one of the things which is going to be quite difficult for charities is actually encouraging people back to head office and to look at whether or not they still need a head office in the way that they needed it prior to two years ago. And certainly that's something that I've seen in practice um, where charities are losing staff because they don't want to come back to Dublin. They don't want to be having to come back to the office, even if it's just one day a week. So that's one of the things, and I think that managing that process is going to be very, very difficult, and re-establishing that, yeah. that base as well. Another thing, is there anything that need to think about in terms of exercising financial control? Because the whole emphasis when we were hit with COVID and where we were in lockdown was how do we keep... Our charities going. How do we keep delivering the service? How do we keep paying the bills? And we changed some certain procedures and policies. Changed quite a bit. Now that we are back, are the things we need to watch out for in terms of that. Now that we are, you know, in a different in environment, that we need to sort of check out that that that, that what we change is still valid, or is are there there might be flaws or weaknesses in it? 
I know that during COVID, during the lockdown for the last, say, two years, that there has been a move away from paper transactions, away from using cheques, for example, and much more to electronic banking, which I think is a very positive thing, so long as you actually have the checks and balances built into your processes. So you still have your two signatories being involved and you, you have a system so that payments can, in fact, be checked as thoroughly as they could be face-to-face. And I think a lot of charities have actually managed to put in robust systems, albeit at a distance from one another. I think that during the lockdown as well, that certain charities actually made some of their controls a little less robust because of the difficulties of actually seeing people face-to-face and following through and actually following up with payments which were urgent, actually putting them through in a way which wasn't really in accordance with the policies and procedures that were in place. And I can understand why that would happen. However, I do think that from the point of view of the people involved, it's not a great idea. I think it's a dangerous thing. It doesn't protect them and it doesn't protect the organisation either. And that's why you have controls in place, really, is to protect the organisation, protect the individuals within the organisation. So I think that... I, I do think that people have, and organisations have gone through that period where they've been able to put in place, by and large, strong controls. And I'd like to think that we'll continue to do that. Um, I, I think that... There are advantages of being able to publish management accounts online, for example, um, of, of being able to load up invoices into a digital format and use an accounting system to its full extent so that you actually have a document management system within your accounting system. I've seen that with certain of the charities as well. And I think that's something that will be taken from this last couple of years in particular. And I think that's something which will provide more of a strength to organisations going forward because they've seen it can be done and they've seen it can work. And that keeps everything ticking over. I suppose one of the other things which I think personally is a very good thing is that people and organisations have moved away from cash. And I always, when I look at cash and I hear about cash, there's something that goes off in my, it's like put the red flag up. Um, but to get away from cash is great. We're one of those that have gone cashless and it just, just, just from so many, it has lots of advantages, you know, um, that, that we no longer have cash. So the controls we have to do, even just physically going down to staff members, going down to the bank and making an allotment, standing in an iron queue where the bank don't want you coming in doing these things. So the fact that, you know, we, we've gone cashless is, 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 there's a lot of positives. And from a control point of view, it just makes life so much easier. Because uh, we were, even though the amounts were relatively small, the amount of controls we had to put in place sort of to just to protect everybody were quite extensive. Um, just I'm thinking of when I'm, I'm talking to charities and I've been doing it for quite some time and, and I've been talking about get, you need to get ready for sort for charities um, and, you know, it says it's coming soon, it's coming soon. But we're now at that actual particular stage where it is actually going to come soon in terms of the, the, the heads of bill for the Charities Amendment Act is in circulation um, within the system. So that will lead to a, a, a regulation that will be put where the, where the regulator can set the standards for charities of, of, and, and um, we're expecting it for charities over 250,000 will need to apply the SORP counting standard for charities. You might, might tell us a bit about what is SORP and what sort of things, if you're not 
producing your flatulence under the SORP standard, what sort of things you need to think about as if this is coming down the road quite soon? Yeah. Well, it's a um, statement of recommended practice uh, to explain what the word SORP means in the first place. And it sets out how charities should prepare and present their annual accounts, their annual financial statements, their audited accounts. And again, we're straight into terminology as soon as we start talking about it. But it sets out, in a set of tables which are contained within the SORP, it actually sets out the presentation of the key items which are included within a set of accounts, the statement of financial activities which replaces the income and expenditure or profit and loss account, and the um, balance sheet is presented in a particular format. Cash flow uh, statement is also prepared in a, state, in a particular format. And the SORP also goes into quite a lot of detail in terms of what should be included within the trustee's annual report or the director's annual report. And it um, groups disclosures under a number of different headings. I think that there are six headings contained in the SORP but it goes into quite a lot of detail in terms of what should be disclosed in the director's report or the or the trustee's annual report. And the idea of it is to tell the story of the charity in the last 12 months. And so it's linking the charitable activities which have been carried out during the 12 months to the annual report as a, as a whole, including the profit and loss account and financial results, charitable activity by charitable activity. There are certain requirements which are for larger charities, which are those whose income is over 500000 within the SORP. And for smaller charities, it's, it's a little bit less onerous, but there is quite a lot which still needs to be included nonetheless. It's very much based on the principles of accountability and transparency. And therefore, there are more disclosures which are required by the charity SORP than are required under the current financial framework. And it's designed to actually encourage that principle of accountability, transparency, to tell the story so that somebody can pick up a an annual report and understand what the charity has done in the last 12 months. And it also is intended to improve financial reporting and to provide a consistent presentation that regulators can refer to as well as stakeholders. Absolutely. Um, For my sins, maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm on the SORP committee for UK and Ireland which is looking at the next version of that standard for charities um, we are looking because it's aligned with the financial reporting council timelines but we're looking that the new that the new updated SORP will be coming in in 2025 so my hunch is that the charity regulator here will align with that new date um, so that charities in Ireland will have to adopt SORP if they're not already but it'll be the new standard and one of the things we are looking at just on that is the the thresholds the sort of the, the, the tiering so we are really hopeful that there will be some movement on that so that the threshold for, for 500,000 may go up a bit so that um, like you know the stats are over over 80% of charities are under 500,000 so an awful lot of charities won't be impacted so if you bring it up another say to 1 million you're only talking about the very significant sized charities but it's something that keep an eye on that space and if you're not doing it now you need to start thinking about that preparation because when we went to, to that standard it took a bit of time 
to, to get it right and in place. So the sooner you start it, the easier the process will be. And don't wait for the new SOP standard because it's not going to be widely different from the current one. There'll be some tweaks and some, edit, some, some adjustments to it, but it won't be sort of a brand new thing that you have to start from scratch. But that's been fantastic. Um, I just, there's one question I always ask my, my, my guests, and uh, you know, just to sort of as a, a wrap-up question, and just you know, given, as you said, you've quite a lot of experience of working with charities over the last 30 years. But if you were, if you had the opportunity of sort of making a, yeah, the wish, what would be your wishes for the charity over the next five years? What would you like to see happening in the sector? I, I think it needs to have, it needs to continue to be a strong sector. Actually, taking regulation and compliance seriously, which I think the majority of the charity sector does. And I think it's very much supported by the charity regulator and also by the public and serving the needs of Ireland. I think that that's very important. And I know that there's a huge tradition um, in Ireland of the charity not-for-profit sector, and I think it just needs to continue to go from strength to strength and to have that support behind it. I think that compliance needs to be, and regulation needs to be um, proportionate, and I think it needs to be more proportionate than it probably is at the moment, because that goes back to something I said earlier on in terms of the resources which are needed in order to be fully compliant and to be showing yourself to be fully compliant. And I think most organisations would come from a place of integrity and honesty as opposed to any other place. And the final thing really would be not to have any more scandals. Well, that might, might be difficult to achieve. We'd all like that because it can be so damaging when there is a, 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 a scandal because people feel betrayed and the public feel betrayed because they put so much trust in charities. We, we work to a very much higher standard of um, what's expected in terms of accountability, transparency. So that would be one key reason why that financial oversight is an integral part of a board member's and charity trustees' role. So, and it's been fantastic covering um, the importance of that sector. So, um, thank you for your, your time, and um, I found it very fascinating. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So, until the next time, Slán go fall.